Hey everyone, this is Denise. I wanted to let you know that we have a Patreon account and we've mentioned it before in the show and you're probably like, what the heck is that? Patreon is a website that gives you some rewards and perks while helping support your favorite podcast. Um, that would be us, Murderous Roots, don't forget. And you can do this for as little as $3. You'll have access to bonus episodes when we release them, as well as a thank you note and Murderous Roots sticker. We hope you check it out at patreon.com slash Murderous Roots. Thanks, guys. Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Well, welcome back to Murderous Roots. I'm Denise Gilhart, a genealogist with a strange obsession with true crime. And I'm Zelda, a person with a strange obsession with Denise Gilhart. <laughs> um, um, should, I, should I have a conversation with the law enforcement? <laughs> that makes me a little nervous there, dear. I know where you live. <laughs> That's funny. You know where I live, though, so... Yeah, that's I mean, true. And you know where I live, so... Man. I better straighten up and fly right. Yep. Um, how's your so how, you, how have you been, Zelda? Well, you know, it's been fine. Um, I'm trying to think of anything truly exciting happening other than I'm going to Iowa tomorrow. Yay. Oh, that's um exciting. It is. It is. We're going to visit some folks, and it's literally go up, have lunch, turn around, and come back. So. Is that for work? Yeah, it's for work. So, uh, um, but it'll be a nice day for a drive. And the person I'm going with, I don't know very well. So I'll get to make a new friend on the way up. So that'll be fun. Oh, good. How about you? What's going on in your world? Getting ready for vacation. Um, <gasps> That's exciting. Yeah, I'm trying to get all this stuff done for the podcast before we go, as I was telling you, and trying to get everything organized for my family, which it's so funny. I am not known as a neat freak. My parents would love to tell you stories about how I was, my room was always messy. However, I've always been organized because I was, I raised, I was raised by these organization freaks. My family does not go in line with organization. So it's always like a constant struggle. Oh gosh. And so my goal this week is to get the house together. Okay. And look nice so that when we get home, we're not walking into a disaster that makes me stress out the moment I walk through the door. Oh, that makes sense. These are my goals. We'll see if we get there. But, That's you know, very cool. Other than that, I mean, nothing too exciting. Just hanging out the pool and doing life. <laughs> well, I think vacation's going to help, too. You know, just a change of so. scenery and, you know. I'm so excited. We're going to New England, so... I'll, I'll wear a couple of my murderous roots sh- shirts up there. So if you happen to see me and you happen to listen, I mean, the all 100 of you, <laughs> just let me know. <laughs> you should definitely post some photos on the Instagram page, though. I think I should. I need to get better about doing um, the social media in the first place. But I think that's a great idea. So You know, because those shirts are darn cute. I like I like the shirts. I had I've had fun designing them. <laughs> And making them and mm-hmm. all that good stuff. So, and you can find them on our I website, everybody. Seriously, support us, 
please. Yes. And our Patreon, we have a bonus episode up right now that I just released. And that was kind of like part two of our conversation with about Megger Evers, where we got into Byron De La Beckwith. We didn't want to take away from Megger's portion. So I did that separately. Yeah, it's going to be really cool for all of our Patreon people. So make sure you sign up to be one of the cool kids. Yes, it's it's only $3 a month. So, I mean, that's pretty yes, cheap. seriously. I should bully some of my family members into I mean, this, that's like, you know, less than, that's less than a cup of coffee at Starbucks. So, for sure. So, today, c- continuing with our summer sodes and our summer of justice, and we were talking about this before we started recording, but summer so does not indicate mini sode. It's, this is not going to be a short one. We're probably going to make this a two-parter just to give you guys a heads up because we have so much information on both ends. Zelda has a ton of information and oh boy, this tree is something else. It's, a, it's, yeah. it's so good. <laughs> I cannot wait to share the information this I found. So exciting. It's so nice to have a person that has like some substance to their story. So yes. it's, it's like, you know, like we had with Medgar Evers, like we've had with some of the other folks this mm-hmm. summer. Cause usually when we're talking about the murderers, we don't necessarily know a whole lot, you know, right. like usually it starts about the time they start committing murders. So exactly. it's really nice and to have this sort of bigger picture. And, and since we're talking about victims, it feels good to be all excited and like, oh, this person's wonderful. Although this person, while she did some good and her impact still continues, she was not, she was far from perfect. And she had some very valid criticisms against her. And today, who are we talking about, Zelda? We're talking about nobody less than Diane Fossey. So I'm super excited about this because I'm a bit of a science geek myself. And she was a good friend of Jane Goodall's, who I've met before. So I know. forgot about that. I remember that picture. Mm-hmm. I'm so jealous. You should be. Everyone should be because Jane That's Goodall's true. amazing. Without the troubling history that yes. Diane brings to the table. <laughs> Um, but we'll just start out at the beginning. It's a good place to start. Diane Fossey was born January 16th, 1932 in San Francisco, California, the daughter of Hazel and George Fossey. She would have turned 90 this year if she was still alive. Yeah. That hit me as I was writing this up. It was like, wow. Yeah. Wow. That is interesting. Yeah. Instead of being, you know, in her 50s. Anyway, her parents divorced when she was six. And like many an awkward youth, Fossey turned to animals as a way to gain acceptance. Her love for animals began with her first pet goldfish. Hey, I had a pet goldfish. See, there's so many parallels, right? Um, <laughs> you are and continued- her twin. <laughs> I feel like it some days. Except with, you know, respect for other humans. Um, continued throughout her entire life. At age six, she began riding horses, earning a letter from her school. And by her graduation, um, she had established graduation from college. Mm-hmm. She had established herself as an equestrian. So obviously loved animals, but it did take a bit for Diane to get on the right road for her life's work. She went to a couple different colleges. She tried out majoring in pre-vet as well as business. Um, but neither of those worked out great for her. Um, right. And although her parents were well off, Diane was financially independent once she told them she wanted to work with animals. And they said, you're on your own. You should get a business degree. <laughs> so she was all like, fine, I'll do it myself. And she did. So she held a variety of different jobs. She was clerking at a department store. She worked as a machinist in a factory. 
But eventually, in 1954, she received her bachelor's degree in occupational therapy from San Jose State College. And then she moved to Louisville, Kentucky, because that's where the horses are. Also, Zappos, which is the only reason I would move to Louisville. They have a Zappos outlet at Louisville, Kentucky. So oh, I did not I'm just know saying that. that. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. You can walk in and pick out your own shoes. It's not online. It's it's amazing. and they're like super super cheap. So oh well then anyway, that's my place. Yeah, I I love Louisville. Okay, so um, she did eventually land a job at Cosair Crippled Children's Hospital, which today is just Children's Hospital, and Cosair Charities split off and is now just a funding foundation. Um, but she was an absolute hit with the kids. So during this time, she met her friends, the Henrys, who um, Dr. Henry, the husband, worked at the hospital where she worked. That's how she got to know them. They had a horse farm. She actually moved in with them and helped take care of the horses and kind of had a bit of the family life she never really grew up with. So they became very close friends of hers, and they would lead her eventually to the love of her life, the gorillas. So what happened was the Henrys were like, hey, we're going on an African safari. Do you want to come with us? And Diane said, I have like no money. What the hell are you thinking? No, I'm not going. But then she felt like, I really, really want to go to Africa. So later in 1963, she borrowed basically one year's salary. It was $8,000. And her life savings just cleared out the bank and went on a seven-week visit to Africa. Now, she went to a lot of different places there. I'm not going to go into all of them. The most important thing for our purposes is that she went to Olduvai Gorge, where she met Richard Leakey as they were examining the area for hominid fossils. We all know who the Leakeys are, right? You know, Lucy. Mm -hmm. um, Okay, so we all know that. Um, So Leakey talked to Fossey about the work of English primatologist Jane Goodall, put stars around that, and the importance of long-term research on the great apes. So how do I want to bring in the, this part of it? Um, so Fossey, again, her, her line was not, it was not a straight line getting right. to where she's suddenly famous for her observations of gorilla behavior. And of course, while she was there in Africa visiting the leaky, she broke her ankle and was recovering in Walter Baumgartel's small hotel in Uganda, the Traveler's Rest, which is actually a pretty famous place. And he was an advocate of guerrilla conservation and one among the first to see the benefits that tourism could bring to the area. And he introduced Fossey to Kenyan wildlife photographers, Joan and Alan Root, who would also become friends with Fossey and help her set up her operations in Africa. Mm-hmm. The couple agreed at this time to allow Fossey and her guide, Alexander, to camp behind their own camp. And it was during those few days that Fossey first encountered wild mountain gorillas. She stayed with friends in Rhodesia after that trip. When she returned home to Louisville to repay her loans, she published three articles in the ugh, she published three articles in the Courier Journal newspaper detailing her visit to Africa, which I think is kind of fun. Right. So Leakey made an appearance in Louisville while on a nationwide lecture tour, and Fossey took the color supplements that appeared about her African trip in the Courier Journal to show to Leakey, who remembered her and her interest in mountain gorillas. Three years after the original safari, Leakey suggested that Fossey could undertake a long-term study of the gorillas in the same manner as Jane Goodall had with chimpanzees in Tanzania. Leakey lined up funding for Fossey to research mountain gorillas, and Fossey left her job to relocate to Africa. Now, one little tidbit of information here is that 
Leaky told her, you know, if you really are intent on doing this, the medical care where you're going is really bad. So you're going to want to get your appendix taken out before you go. In case something goes wrong, you would just die. And she's like, okay, I guess I'll go get my appendix taken out. So she got her appendix taken out. Because apparently back then you could just go up to a surgeon and say, take my appendix out and they do it, right? Like, could you even imagine trying that today? Anyway, yeah, I'm like, whoa, the 60s were crazy. So she ended up, um, she found out later that she didn't really need to get her appendix removed. He just wanted to test her resolve to see if this is something she really wanted to do. So we now know that Richard Leakey was a gaslighting asshole. So could you even imagine finding that out? I probably would have just beheaded him. Oh, my God. So (laughs) I can see you doing that. I was like, you you had me do what? So anyway, but Fossey took it very seriously. She studied Swahili and she audited a class in primatology during the eight months it took to get her visa and funding. She arrived in Nairobi in December 1966. With the help of Joan Root and Leakey, Fossey acquired the necessary provisions and an old canvas top Land Rover that she named Lily. On the way to Congo, Fossey visited the Gombe Stream Research Center to meet Goodall and observe her research methods with chimpanzees and thus started a beautiful and lifelong friendship for her. So, accompanied by the photographer Alan Root, who helped her obtain work permits for work in the Virunga Mountains, Fossey began her field study at Kabara in Congo in early 1967 in the same meadow where Schaller, who was an earlier primatologist, made his camp seven years earlier. So the photographer taught her basic gorilla tracking. And then um, he had <clears throat> um, a local tracker, Sun K, who later helped in Fossey's camp. So she lived in tents on mostly tinned produce. Once a month, she'd hike down the mountain to Lily and make the two-hour drive to the village of Kikumba to restock. However, she arrived in the Congo at kind of a bad time. So... You know, we're talking, this is 1967, okay? So it was known as the Belgian Congo until its independence in June 1960. And there was a lot of unrest and rebellion until 1965 when Lieutenant General Joseph Desiree Mobutu, by then Commander-in-Chief of the National Army, seized control of the company and declared himself president for five years during what's now called the Congo Crisis. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of battles. There's a lot of bloodshed. On July 7th, 1967, soldiers arrived at the camp to escort Fossey and her research workers down, and she was detained at Rumangabo for two weeks. Fossey eventually escaped through bribery and got to Uganda, where her escort was arrested by the Ugandan military. Advised by the Ugandan authorities not to return to Congo, after meeting Leakey in Nairobi, Fossey Mm -hmm. agreed with him, against U.S. Embassy advice, to go ahead and restart her study on the Rwandan side of the Virungas. On September 24th, 1967, Fossey founded the Karasoki Research Center, a remote rainforest camp nestled in Ruangiri province in the saddle of two volcanoes. Unlike the gorillas from the Congo side of the Virungas, the Karasoki area gorillas had never been partially habituated by Schaller's study. They knew humans only as poachers, and it took longer for Fossey to be able to study those gorillas at a close distance. And so she tried to copy their actions and habituate herself, and over time the gorillas became accustomed to her. So she found out some interesting things, including how females transfer from group to group over the decades, the vocalizations of gorillas, 
hierarchies, social relationships among groups, the rare infanticide, gorilla diet, and how gorillas recycle nutrients. Fossey's research was funded by the Wilkie Foundation and the Leakey Home, with primary funding coming from the National Geographic Society. In 1970, she appeared on the cover of National Geographic magazine, which brought tremendous attention to her work. By 1980, Fossey, who obtained her PhD at Cambridge University in the UK, was recognized as the world's leading authority on the physiology and behavior of mountain gorillas. She defined gorillas as being dignified, highly social, gentle giants with individual personalities and strong family relationships. Dr. Fossey lectured as a professor at Cornell University in 1981 to 1983. And then her best-selling book, Gorillas in the Mist, Mm -hmm. was praised by Nicholas Tinbergen, the Dutch ethologist and ornithologist who won the 1973 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Her book remains the best-selling book about gorillas, which I think is kind of wild. So, as a little interesting factoid, she couldn't keep a research student. Why? Because it was awful there. It was dark and cold and muddy. And you had to cut through six foot tall grass with a machete to get anywhere. So they'd come, stay a while, and then leave. Um, not very many research students stuck around. One of the things that she became very well known for was how she approached poaching and poachers. She yeah. hated them. She had this blood feud hatred of poachers or anybody who looked like they might be a poacher. Right. She was reported to have captured and held Rwandans she suspected of poaching. She allegedly beat a poacher's testicles with stinging nettles. In a letter to a friend, she wrote, We stripped him and spread eagled him and lashed the holy blue sweat out of him with nettle stalks and leaves. She even reportedly kidnapped and held for ransom the child of a suspected poacher. After her death, Fossey's National Geographic editor, Mary Smith, said that on her visits to the United States, Fossey would load up on firecrackers, cheap toys, and magic tricks as part of her method to mystify the people in order to hold them at bay. She wore face masks and pretended to practice black magic and would drug them and all kinds of things in order to scare away poachers. Writing in the Wall Street Journal in 2002, the journalist Tunku Veradarajan described Fossey at the end of her life as colorful, controversial, and a racist alcoholic who regarded her gorillas as better than the African people who lived around them. Dr. Michelle Rodriguez, who's currently at Marquette University, wrote on Lady Science in 2019, while her tactics are often glossed over and minimized, it's not for lack of reporting that her quote-unquote active conservation methods included kidnapping and torture. People magazine reported on it in the wake of her death. Harold Hayes' 1990 biography, The Dark Romance of Diane Fossey, incorporated these details. Reviews of this biography described Fossey as one of the last white colonialists and acknowledged that her actions were rooted in racism. Mm -hmm. The image of Fossey, a white American woman, whipping and torturing black African poachers, is evocative of the behavior of white slaveholders in the American South. It is appalling to think of that behavior occurring in the 1850s, There's no way we can explain Fossey's behavior in the 1970s as the product of a different time. Yet, almost three decades later, the romantic notion of a noble martyr who died for her devotion to gorillas prevails, and these terrifying actions are often described as simply unorthodox methods. Dr. Rodriguez continues, perhaps these truths are softened due to fears that the reality of this legacy would harm gorilla conservation efforts. 
but memorializing her as a martyr and patron saint of guerrilla conservation demands that we forget the cruel acts she advocated for and performed. So coming with that background, sometime during the day on New Year's Eve 1977, Fosse's favorite guerrilla, Digit, was killed by poachers. As the sentry of study group four, he defended the group against six poachers and their dogs, who ran across the guerrilla study group while checking antelope track lines. Digit took five spear wounds in ferocious self-defense and managed to kill one of the poacher's dogs, allowing the other 13 members of his group to escape. Digit was decapitated and his hands cut off for ashtrays. Oh my goodness. He was 12 years old. After his mutilated body was discovered by research assistant Ian Redmond, Fosse's group captured one of the killers. He revealed the names of his five accomplices, three of whom were later imprisoned. Fosse later described Digit's killing as the saddest event in all my years of sharing the daily lives of Mountain Gorilla. Fosse subsequently created the Digit Fund in order to raise money for anti-poaching patrols. In addition, a consortium of international guerrilla funds arose to accept donations in light of Digit's death and increased attention on, on poaching. Fosse mostly opposed the efforts of the international organizations, which she felt inefficiently directed their funds toward more equipment for Rwandan park officials, some of whom were alleged to have ordered some of the guerrilla poachings in the first place. Yeah, that, that doesn't work well. <laughs> yep. The deaths of some of her most studied guerrillas caused Fosse to devote more of her attention to preventing poaching and less on scientific publishing and research. And, of course... She ramped up her actions and employed even more devastating tactics. In addition to cutting animal traps, they frightened, captured, humiliated the poachers. They held their cattle, sometimes their children for ransom, burnt their hunting camps, and even burnt the mats from their houses. So there was a real kind of war going on between Mm -hmm. these factions of people. Yeah. In the early morning of December 27th, 1985, So she's been up on this mountain for about 20 years at this point. Yeah. Long time. Fosse was a really long time. And, you know, for the most part, she's not around a lot of other humans except to, you know, boss them around or torture them. Yeah. So I imagine. she did come stateside sometimes to visit, but I mean, it wasn't that frequent. (laughs) Right. Right. So in the early morning of December 27th, 1985, Fosse was discovered murdered in the bedroom of her cabin, located at the far edge of the camp in the Virunga Mountains. Her body was found face up near the two beds where she slept, roughly seven feet away from a hole that her assailants had apparently cut in the wall of the cabin. Wayne Richard McGuire, Fosse's last research assistant at Karasoki, was summoned to the scene by Fosse's house servant and found her bludgeoned to death, reporting that, When I reached down to check her vital signs, I saw her face had been split diagonally with one machete blow. Oh, my God. The cabin was littered with broken glass and overturned furniture with a nine millimeter handgun and ammunition beside her on the floor. Her cabin had been ransacked. However, robbery was not believed to be the motive for the crime because her valuables were still in the cabin, including her passport, handguns and thousands of dollars in U.S. bills and traveler's checks. Wow. The last entry in her diary read, When you realize the value of all life, you dwell less on what is past and concentrate more on the preservation of the future. Hmm. Fosse is buried at Karasoki in a site that she herself had constructed for her deceased gorilla friends. She was buried in the gorilla graveyard next to Digit and near many gorillas killed by poachers. Memorial services were also held in New York City, Washington, D.C., and California. Fosse is generally credited with reversing the downward trend in the mountain gorilla population. 
due to poaching, gorilla populations declined from 450 in 1960 to just 250 in 1981. However, Fossey's war on poaching saw the final confirmed killing of a gorilla in 1983. By the late 1980s, the population had risen to 280, and it continues to rise. Yay. Between Fossey's death and the 1994 Rwandan genocide, Karasoki mm. was directed by former students, some of whom opposed her. During the genocide and subsequent period of insecurity, the camp was completely looted and destroyed. Today, only remnants are left of her cabin. During the Civil War in Rwanda, the Virunga National Park was filled with refugees and illegal logging destroyed vast areas. Now, so what happened after Fossey was murdered? After her death, her entire staff was arrested. This included Rwandan Emmanuel Rwelakana, a tracker who'd been fired from his job after he allegedly tried to kill Fossey with a machete, according to the government's account of McGuire's trial. All were later released, except Rwelakana, who was later found dead in prison, mm. allegedly having hung himself. For some reason, I don't believe so, that. Yeah. So, of course, Wayne McGuire books it back to the U.S. as soon as he can, well, the Rwandan courts tried and convicted him in absentia for murder. Right. So according to them, he murdered her. The alleged motive was that McGuire had murdered Fossey in order to steal the manuscript of the sequel to her 1983 book, Gorillas in the Mist. <laughs> At the trial, I know, right? It's kind of nutty. That doesn't even make any sense. No, not at all. Mm -mm. At the trial, investigators said McGuire was not happy with his own research and wanted to use any dishonest means possible to complete his work. He had returned to the United States, but because there's no extradition treaty between the U.S. and Rwanda, McGuire just didn't go to Rwanda, and his penalty would have been death by shooting, mm -hmm. so he just can never go back to Rwanda. He's probably okay with that. Yeah, although he Following... did lose jobs when they found yep. out that, mm -hmm. without looking more into it, they're like, oh, well, you were convicted of murder. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and I was actually going to mention that, because he was oh, kind of quiet and... No, no, it's good. It's It was kind of, un he was kind of under the radar until 2005 when news broke he'd accepted a job with the Health and Human Services Division of the state in Nebraska, which they then revoked that job offer upon his discovery of, on, upon their discovery of his relation to the Fosse case. Ridiculous. So, and of course, every time there's a murder, there are people who have theories. So loads of books have been written that suggesting alternative theories, including intimations that she may have been killed by financial interests linked to, tour linked to tourism or illicit trade. Mm -hmm. um, it's been alleged she had potentially damning evidence of gold smugglers, hence the ransacked cabin. A will purporting to be Fosse's bequeathed all of her estate, including the proceeds from the film Gorillas in the Mist, to the Digit Fund to underwrite anti-poaching patrols. Now, Fosse didn't mention her family in the will, and the will was unsigned. Mm -hmm. Her mother, Hazel Fossey Price, successfully challenged the will. The New York, New York State Supreme Court Justice Swartwood, that's a new one for me, <laughs> um, threw out the will and awarded the estate to her mother, including about $4.9 in royalties from a recent book and upcoming movie, stating that the document was simply a draft of her purported will and not a will at all. Mm-hmm. And, of course, her mother said she was going to put it on a project to preserve the work that her daughter had done for the gorillas in Rwanda. So that is my part. And I left out so many juicy details. There is so much to her story. 
Yeah. Particularly There's over there. So I mean, much. 20 years <clears throat> there. Mm, yeah. Not being a champion of all the people. <laughs> right. I mean, she obviously didn't have many friends. Right. Among the people who lived there. And I, I mean... Okay, I get upset if someone gives me an ugly look at work, you know, and I'm like, I can't imagine living in a place where people actively hate me. (laughs) Right. So I think even if I brought it on my own head, you know, I'm going to start off by saying that her tree was a bit of a mess in some ways. And this was not her fault, of course, but her parents. Um, (laughs) I had to sort through a lot of information. And what I found led me to some definite opinions about the people involved about her parents, particularly. It's kind of funny with genealogy. You learn about some people on paper, their movements. Sometimes you'll get a hint of personality or you you feel like you're getting to know the person. And so you form an opinion. Sometimes you could be wrong because you do not have the full story. And so I'll admit that here. I don't have the full story. I don't know everything. However, I do have some opinions based on the facts and different things I've read. But I am missing enough of the story. I could be completely wrong on my thoughts. So I will let you guys be your own judges and you tell me what you think. So Zelda, you didn't miss a thing on Diane. Well, that's not completely true. There's one thing you missed, but I'll get to it. She was an only child with a messed up home life. Now let's get into the details, especially because I believe there's a lot more to the story of George Edward Fossey. The third was born in March, 1907 in San Francisco. One of two children the youngest, as a matter of fact. He had an older sister, Audrey, who we will discuss at the end. And trust me, you guys want to hear the end. So stick around. George was not only born in San Francisco, but he was raised there. Then at the age of 20, he started working at the piers and on ships. I found him on a ship manifest landing in New Orleans in 1927. And on a sh- it was a ship that had been to Guatemala. Then in June 1928, he arrived on a ship out of San Francisco in New York City and was listed as the junior freight clerk on the SS Columbia. So he liked working at sea, but he would give up the sea for a life with a young woman born in Arkansas in 1909 who had come to San Francisco, Miss Hazel Kidd. And now Hazel wasn't raised in Arkansas. She was raised in Fresno, California, since the time she was two years old. Oh, and she was also the baby of her family. But in this case, she was the youngest of six. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's impossible to know when George and Hazel met, but I believe they had a short romance given his time at sea. Less than two months after landing in New York City um, on the SS Columbia, George and Hazel eloped in Reno, Nevada in August 1928. In the San Francisco Examiner on October 10th, 1928, I found an entertaining article that sheds a little bit more light on Diane's father, George. If it hadn't been for George Fossey's football training, a diamond thief might have gotten away with his loot yesterday. Fossey, a former Polytechnic high school player and end on last year's San Mateo Junior College team, heard the cry of stop, thief at 4th and Market Streets and brought the fugitive to the pavement with a flying tackle. The man, according to the police, had snatched four diamond rings valued at $650 from a tray in the Sorensen's jewelry store. These were found on him by Police Corporal Coughlin and Officer Thomas Andrews, who were in close pursuit when Fossey's tackle registered. So, wow. So he was not exactly a small man necessarily either. 
Um, According to the 1930 census, George stopped working on ships and got a job as a bond salesman. And the couple were settled at 5 Rico Way in the Marina District of San Francisco, only one block from the bay. They would be married three and a half years when Diane came. While I was unable to find a divorce record with the exact date of divorce, I believe the couple likely separated in 1937, when when Diane was five, and formally divorced in 1938. My evidence of this is a small item in a Marin County, California newspaper, the San Anselmo Herald, on March 24, 1938, mentioning that George was an associate member of the Kentfield Realty Company. Kind of like, oh, guess who's just now joining us? Oh, nice. I believe George must have left San Francisco for more opportunities, and the fact that his sister lived there with his niece and nephew didn't hurt. Now, according to other reports I've seen, he was not happy in San Francisco. He had been drinking and getting arrested. I saw no evidence of that. It's possible. Hmm. And that could be another reason he left San Francisco for a fresh start. But that's what prompted allegedly the divorce. Oh. But he also had cousins, aunts and uncles living in Marin County. And Marin County is just across the bay. (laughs) So, I mean, you just take the Golden Gate Bridge and there you are. You're in Marin County. So it's not like he went a far distance. I did locate George's World War II draft registration card. And he was described as being 5'11", 180 pounds with blue eyes and brown hair. Oh, and he noted that there were scars underneath each one of his eyes so that's interesting yeah makes me curious but i couldn't find anything on that maybe football got a little rough i don't know Mm -hmm. Hmm. by this time six months after the census he worked at engineers limited working on the alpine dam which is a reservoir that provides water to the marin municipal water district but i'm not sure if he worked there long or took on a second project because a year later He owned and operated a trout farm in Inverness. According to the newspaper Hmm. article I found, he had 15 different pools with 75,000 rainbow and eastern brook trout. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Again, though, this job wouldn't last too long. Two months later, the United States would enter World War II, Hmm. changing plans for everyone, particularly men. In May 1942, George returned to the sea by enlisting in the U.S. Navy. By June, he was serving on the USS Chaumont, a ship that miraculously left port at Pearl Harbor a mere eight days before the Japanese attack. Wow. She was headed for Manila at the time, but got redirected to San Francisco, arriving March 1942. When George boarded the ship, the mission was to help rebuild Pearl Harbor and by carrying men to the base as well as supplies. And I think that George was a passenger sent to Hawaii to help with the rebuild. Okay. I don't know how much time he might have spent on um, ships afterwards because I couldn't find him on any other ship manifest in the Navy rosters, but it's possible he was. He would get some leave and in November 1943 at the Mark Hopkin Hotel in San Francisco, George remarried this time to Gladys Lucille Kohler. They wouldn't have much of a honeymoon as George would return to the Navy for the remainder of the war. But Gladys didn't stay home and mourn the loss of her new husband who was at war. Nope, she was a whack. She enlisted in the Women's Army Corps soon That's after they interesting. married. interesting. Yeah. 
While George was at sea, Gladys was stationed at Fort Story in Virginia as a dental laboratory technician and even earned a good conduct medal. Wow. The next muster roll where I found George was as a passenger three years later on the USS Missouri, a brand new battleship commissioned in June 1944, and they were returning home. For those who know, and those, I see Zelda going, hmm, this is very familiar. This is the very same ship where the Japanese surrendered on September 2nd, 1945. After the surrender, it sailed to Pearl Harbor, and the next day, now with George aboard, it headed to New York City. Four days after arriving in New York City, President Truman boarded the ship as the Missouri boomed out a 21-gun salute. George returned home, once again a civilian. So Zelda mentioned that Hazel and George divorced when Diane was six. What she did not mention was that Hazel wanted nothing to do with George after the divorce and refused to allow him to even have a relationship with Diane. George would send pictures and letters and they would not reach Diane. And I do wonder why. And the hint was that he was drinking and causing problems. He was a nice guy, though. So did George do something or was Hazel a bitch or both? But here's <laughs> here's what I do know. It wasn't long after the couple divorced that Hazel remarried to Richard Calvert Price, a man five years her junior. According to the 1940 census, Richard owned a pest control company and Hazel modeled clothing. Diane's relationship with her stepfather, I don't believe was the best. According to all reports, multiple reports from different um, books and from on Wikipedia and all that, Richard never gave Diane any emotional support. He never treated her as his child. So they mm. cut off her relationship with her father, and then Richard never even bothered to adopt her. Mm. So she was treated as other by him. And she wasn't even allowed to sit at the dining room table with him or Hazel for meals. Oh, my God. She had to eat in the kitchen with the housekeeper until she was 10. Oh and my even goodness. then, it's question. So it wasn't a great relationship. And I also read somewhere that her mother expect had certain expectations for Diane. And Diane did not go with those expectations, upsetting her mother. And as I said, her father wasn't allowed to see her, but this leaves me with some questions, and here's why. In late 1949, Richard, Hazel, and Diane made their home in Marin County, where George lived. Mm. And they were just 10 miles apart from each other. Oh, interesting. Not only that, but a lot of the Fossies, including Diane's first cousins, lived there. And the local paper had lots of articles about the Fossey family and what they were up to. Huh. Uh-huh. That's interesting. Yep. Now, granted, Diane had graduated from high school at this point, so she wasn't going to be going to school with anybody. But I do find that fascinating. Mm -hmm. So it's 1950. Diane's family is all now in Marin County. Well, kind of. You see, I found George in the census twice that year. In April 1950, he was working as a construction foreman living in a temporary housing situation with another man presumably his contracting partner, and they were up in Quincy, Washington. By the end of May, at least according to his second wife, he was back at home in San Rafael, California. I do get the sense that George was a bit restless, 
all the time, what with all these different jobs. But I really feel like he loved being at sea. I found him on the Navy Reserve List in 1947 in the 12th District. He was inactive at the time. Then in 1952, I found George in Guam. Oh. Why? Because he was working for the federal government in the U.S. Navy Civil Service. Oh, wow. Yep. In October 1953, Gladys filed for divorce from George, citing extreme cruelty. Hmm. The divorce would be granted in December. So was George abusive? I don't know. Extreme cruelty has any number of meanings, it turns out, because I was trying to look it up and figure this out, including abuse. But if he was, and this, you know, that would explain partly why George wasn't allowed to see Diane. But it's also possible that his constant absences were what she deemed cruelty. Mm. Mm. You know, that would do he, it. he wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So, and he was leaving everything to her. It's, it's, it's complicated. George would remarry one last time, I believe around 1959, to Catherine K. Smith. Around May 1967, the couple would open an antique and used furniture store called K's of Kentfield. George died the next year in September 1968 at the age of 61. Um, I did find his obituary, which appeared in the San Francisco Examiner on September 20th, 1968. And... I I thought I would share it just because I I found it a bit telling. Um, In Fairfax, September 16th, 1968, George Edward Fossey, beloved husband of Catherine Fossey, devoted father of Diane Fossey of Nairobi, loving brother of Mrs. Audrey L. Rowe of Sacramento, a native of California, aged 61 years. So he made sure he mentioned Diane. And accordingly, they did have communications at this point when he died. Um, now, when you combine that obituary with an article in the Daily Independent Journal, a San Rafael paper, on November 14th, 1968, it was an article about Diane, but I'm going to just read the, the um, pertinent part. Diane Fossey, 36-year-old brunette, who is the daughter of Catherine Fossey of Kentfield and the late George E. Fossey, has just returned from 22 months in Africa. And... There was no reference to Hazel. So, and then there was a quote from her. So, where was her actual mother, Hazel, and stepfather at this time? I'm not sure. I know they ended up passing away around in Redwood, California. But I believe that they had a relationship. But I don't get the sense that it was a relationship Diane wanted. Well, I mean, Hazel outlived Diane, didn't she? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, And you mentioned the fight over the will Mm -hmm. and everything that happened with that. I'm going to kind of revisit part of it. So after Diane was murdered and she was buried at the gorilla cemetery near her research station, the funeral was led by a missionary from California and attended by by the governor of the prefecture where she was located, as well as U.S. embassy officials and 50 friends and co-workers, some who traveled to be there. Who wasn't there, or at any of the memorials that is known, her mother and stepfather. Really? Yeah. Now, granted, they were nearing their 80s at the time. Okay. However, this is from the Twin Fall Times on January 2nd, 1986. And by the way, it's going to re- reference a wish, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, U.S. Embassy officials who attended the funeral said this wish 
um, was being relayed to Ms. Fossey's mother and stepfather, Hazel and Richard Price of Atherton, California. They said Price plans to visit Rwanda to arrange for a permanent grave marker. The Prices said in a telegram to the embassy that they hoped the grave would become a shrine to the memory of Diane and other students who sacrificed so much of their lives helping the rest of the world understand the mountain gorillas of Rwanda. Mm. And the wish was um, that Diane wanted a single word on her gravestone that meant, I can't say the word because I don't want to butcher it, but it means the lady who lives alone in the forest. Mm. Mm-hmm. So not only did the Prices never visit Rwanda, they never arranged a permanent grave marker either. Oh, wow. And then a few months later, as we know, they challenged the will. After the decision was made that the Prices got the money, they said that they would send a portion to the digit fund, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And that's now today known as the Diane Fossey Foundation. They never did. Mm -hmm. They never gave any money. They just pocketed those millions for themselves. Richard died just over a year and a half after their court victory. Hazel died four years later in January 1994. She was 84, and I couldn't find an obituary for either one of them. And according to the book I mentioned, her mother could not understand why she lived the life she did Mm -hmm. and was upset. Her plan for Diane was her to marry well Mm -hmm. into a good family Mm -hmm. that they could be proud of. And she thought what Diane was doing was trying to drive them apart. She resented the the gorillas, basically. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you know that, it doesn't surprise me she wouldn't donate to it. Mm -hmm. But I just don't get the feeling Mm -hmm. she was close to either parent. One, because he was separated from her. Mm -hmm. And he tried later on, but, you know... You know, too much history, too much trauma. And the other Mm -hmm. because she wasn't the expectation that they had for her. Mm -hmm. So it makes me feel a little sorry for her on that. I I definitely do. I mean, in all honesty, I mean, if you're a horse girl, that takes a lot of money. (laughs) To be Mm -hmm. an equestrian takes a lot of money. So it was pretty obvious her parents had much different ideas of what they wanted their darling Diane to do. So I can imagine they were just like beside themselves so you know i don't think richard ever really loved her Mm -hmm. she was hazel's daughter and that was pretty much it Mm -hmm. and he benefited off of that at some point naturally all these family dynamics made me curious about diane's family tree and i decided to start with hazel kid i wanted to know why her family left arkansas to settle in california particularly fresno Mm -hmm. Hazel's father was Robert Thomas Kidd, the only child of Joshua and Nancy. Now, Joshua Kidd grew up in Alabama, the oldest of 10 children, before leaving for Arkansas, settling first in Hempstead County, home to one of our future presidents, by the way, William Jefferson Clinton. That's where Hope, Arkansas is. Anyhow, in 1854, at the age of 25, he married 21-year-old Nancy Evans. He must not have been happy with his prospects, because by 1860, a few months after Robert was born, the family moved to Bear Creek in Sevier County, about 30 miles away. But they didn't stay there, and they moved even further north, this time to Osage Township in Benton County, a county that sits along the Missouri and Oklahoma borders. They were there by 1870. Now, Joshua owned a little bit of land, not a lot, 
with his estimated real estate value being $200. Hmm. In the 1880 census, I found Robert in two places at once. <laughs> These census takers are doing their jobs and they're getting double counted. But anyhow, his parents counted him as being with them, helping out on their farm. However, he was also counted as being in Texas. Robert had found work on the railroad in Eastland, Texas, and boarded with other men working for the railroad. Hmm. So I imagine it was a temporary job to help bring in money for the family. You know, much like Pa had to do on Little House on the Prairie from time to time. I was waiting for that. Took a moment for that to sink in. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. I'm like, oh, man, did she not hear or was it that bad? Okay. <laughs> now I'm just slow on the uptake right now. That's okay. Robert did return to Arkansas, this time to Crawford County. And it's a county just to the north of Fort Smith, a town we discussed in our episode on Bell Star. It was there that Robert married an Indiana girl, Mary Isabel Hooten, or Molly. And they got married in 1886. Side note, <laughs> I have no idea how Molly got to Arkansas or why, but we'll explore that in a bit. Well, it wasn't Indiana, so there's an there's the upside. <laughs> yeah, but it was Arkansas. That's uh, the downside. Arkansas is very pretty. It is pretty. But they really like the pig too much down there, you know. <laughs> Razorbacks. Yeah. So Robert continued working for the railroad, Dean this time Hoss. staying in Arkansas. Oh, wait, did I say that out loud? What'd you say? Damn Jayhawks. Hey. <laughs> I had to beat you up. Okay. <laughs> and soon after the couple married, they started their family. And Robert's parents made their way south and moved in with him until they died sometime before 1910. Part of me believes that Robert stayed in Arkansas for his parents, but that he had an urge to go west. Mm. Because not long after they both died, he packed up his family and put them onto the wagon and headed for California by 1911. Oh, wow. Yeah. Robert, Molly, their six children, including Hazel, who was likely only a year old, maybe 15 months at the time, mm -hmm. a son-in-law, as well as two grandchildren, all making the trip. It's a full house or full wagon or wagons. Now, why would they all go? It's possible that the kids left for farmland in California, hearing that, you know, this is a land of plenty type of thing, or due to a lack of jobs that paid well enough for the family in Arkansas. But migration was picking up in the country as a whole at the time. As we discussed with the Till family last time, there was a great northward migration for black families. But in Arkansas, they had their own great migration, mainly white families leaving the state. Hmm. Um, from the 1920s to the 1970s, 1.2 million people left Arkansas. Wow. I know, it's a lot. Although Arkansas residents started leaving the state long before 1920, they started in the 1890s. Here's an interesting fact for you, too. From 1940 to 1970, the state lost residents each census period. Really? Yes, it's in the negative. Do we know why? Well, they they believe it had to do with there were too many people saturating and not enough farmland to actually farm. Oh, okay. As part of it, not enough jobs. Mm-hmm all that playing a role. 
Okay. But from 1890 to 1930, though the population growth slowed considerably with many residents leaving the state, they didn't lose more than they gained. According to the records I found, the Kidd family left Arkansas in either late 1910 or early 1911 and finally arrived in Fresno to make it their home. Okay. Once there, all the kids that were able got jobs. According to the 1920 census, Robert worked at a lumber yard. Molly was a dressmaker. Their daughter, Flossie, was a stenographer at City Hall. And son, Crowell, worked at a foundry as an iron worker, while Hazel attended school. Hmm. Now, Diane's Aunt Irma went to San Francisco and found work as a clerk with a telephone company. Good on her. An independent woman. And was living as a single woman, independent woman, for a time until she got married. Most notably, by 1930, despite the Depression, they had found some financial stability. Robert and Molly now owned a home valued at $3,500. And Robert was still working, now as a janitor at a school. Of their five children, three girls, two boys, only two would marry and have children. Mm. Yeah, their oldest and youngest daughters. Wow. Um, they had another daughter who got married, but she never had children. So let's talk about a couple of Hazel's siblings. So these are the aunts and uncles of Diane, because I did find some interesting stories to share. We will start with her brother, Paul Homan Kidd, who was born in 1894 and died in 1943, a bit of a short life. And it was almost even shorter. In July 1913, Paul was a workman on a building in Fresno when the scaffolding broke and he fell two stories into the basement. Mm -hmm. He lived, but he broke his back. One vertebrae was dislocated and a ligament torn. Oh my god! Paul would spend six weeks in the hospital, Craven Sanitarium. He filed a claim against Raiden and Camp, as well as one other. They claimed the accident was his own fault, but they settled with him anyway. He he asked for a thousand. He got one eight hundred dollars and was quite happy with that. Oh my gosh! I'm not sure, but there's a Raiden and Camp building, and it's on the National Historic Registry. That's oh in Fresno. I'm not sure if it was that building he was working on because this is about seven to ten years before it was completed. Mm-hmm. But it might have been interesting. Now we'll go to Mabel, the oldest child. Prior to their trip out of Arkansas, Mabel wed John Blackie Rizal in 1906, and they had two children at the time, Angeline, or Angel, and son Paul. In fact, it's likely that Paul wasn't yet two years old when they headed to Fresno. So Paul was basically about the same age as Hazel, his aunt. Wow. Yeah. So once they settled into a home, one more child arrived in 1918, Robert Hugh. The marriage, though, would not survive, ending sometime before 1930. Turns out that Blackie had a temper and may have been abusive. In June 1924, Mabel had him arrested for threatening to kill her entire family. Wow. Now, I looked to find out if anything else happened on that case and what happened next with them. And I stumbled onto a shocking story in the Fresno Bee on April 9th, 1933. Military burial given victim of mystery murder. John F. Rizal, 50, former Fresno, whose charred and bullet-ridden body was found last January on the desert near Brawley, buried last week following a funeral with military rites conducted by the American Legion. Rizal had recently made his home in Stockton. 
he had visited Van Buren, Arkansas, in connection with the settlement of his father's estate. And robbery is believed by Imperial County authorities to have been the motive for the crime. Oh, my gosh. Rizal was returning his way back to California, his home in a new coop. He was last seen alive when he left an El Centro hotel with a companion. Roselle's charred body was found in the brush and his burned automobile some distance away. His widow, so Mabel, said the amount of money Roselle was carrying had not been established, but might reach what was believed to have been about $4,000. I felt like I needed to know more about the story and see if anything got resolved on it. And I did find a story in the Los Angeles Times on January 28th, 1933, when his body was found. Mm -hmm. And it was a little enlightening. Um, Desert gives up slain man. Throwing light upon a murder mystery which has puzzled Imperial County officers since the 15th, the charred body of Blackie Rizal, believed to have been killed by Tom McClelland, was found on the desert east of here late yesterday. The body was discovered a mile from the burned remnants of Rizal's automobile. The sheriff believes an effort had been made to burn the body as well as the car. Oh, my God. Yeah. The two men disappeared from the ranch house owned by McClelland and his two brothers early on the morning of the 15th, leaving a trail of blood and several bullet holes in the walls of the building as mute testimony of a tragedy. McClelland's two brothers were questioned and stated that Rizal was still sleeping in the bedroom when they left the place the morning the men dropped from sight. Since then, Sheriff Campbell and his deputies have combed the desert in search of Rizal's car, which was also missing. It was located early this week from an airplane, and a further search disclosed the body. The McClellan brothers denied they knew of any trouble between the men or any reason for the murder. Wow. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, the case was never officially solved. Wow. So there were a number of violent deaths in her family. Yeah. Wow. Oh, and we're not done. Wow. We hope you enjoy listening to part one of our profile on Diane Fossey. We will be back next week, July 28th, with part two. And you really don't want to miss it because there's even more murder in Diane Fossey's treat coming up. If you enjoyed our discussion on murder and family, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You could also help support our podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash murderousroots. For more information on this episode and past episodes, as well as merchandise, just go to our website at murderousroots.com. And of course, you can also find us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even on TikTok. Thanks, everyone.